Good morning. Um, before we jump in this morning to our sermon, uh, a couple things we want to share with you. The first one is uh, we want to ask that you please be in prayer for Christy Abernathy and her family um, in just uh, a little bit here. Uh, we'll be having the memorial service for her stepdad, and uh, so please be in prayer for them, um, which is why I'm dressed up this morning. Um, some people have loved that I'm this dressed up, and some have hated that I'm this dressed up, and so I'm just glad I'm not dressed for any of you today. Um, Because that's not what we do here, right? It's not about that. Uh, But please keep uh, her family in your prayers. Also, I ask you to pray. Brian Cleveland lost his mom early this morning. Uh, So please keep the Cleveland family in your prayers as well. I want to acknowledge one other thing before we jump in, and that is um, we have some special, special guests. We say special guests every week, so they're special, special guests. Um, Matt and Jessica Harden are here with us this morning, um, our missionaries to India. Their girls are not here today, uh, but Matt and Jessica are here today. And um, so before we're done today, stop by and just give them a hug around the neck and tell them you're proud of them for how they're serving God in that difficult place. And uh, they've been here in the States for a couple months. They're just about to go back. And um, we actually have something special we want to present to them this morning. Matt, if you would come forward, uh, we, we've got something. So Matt has an opportunity in India where he's invited once a month to speak in a public school in India. And uh, he's allowed to come speak in English, whatever he wants to talk about. And so he tells the stories of the Bible uh, to share the message of the gospel with these young people in a public school in India, uh, in a country that is not open to missionaries or the gospel. He has more freedom in a public school than we have in public schools here. Interesting. But that's not what this morning's talk is about. Um, and so we, our temple kids, on Wednesday nights, uh, while we've been at home groups, uh, our temple kids have written some little cards of blessing and made some handmade bracelets uh, that Matt is going to be able to take back with him and give to those kiddos. And so isn't that awesome? And so we publicly just want them to know that we love them and are proud of them for how they're serving God there and uh, are excited to be a little part of it. And um, those gifts will be really cute because I had nothing to do with it. So we know that our kiddo cuteness will carry over. uh, It crosses cultures and languages. We're continuing our talk called Truth in Love. The idea that truth is found in love, which means we can't have one without the other. And matter of fact, a mark, according to Ephesians 4, of growing up, of maturing in Christ, is that we walk into difficult conversations, conversations that aren't received well, and our approach is both truth and love. As a matter of fact, that's where truth is found, is in love. So I can't say, well, I'm just loving, so I'm not going to share what I believe the truth is. Or, well, I'm just a person of truth. I don't need to worry about love. Because you can't have true truth without love. And you can't have loving love without truth. And, and, and we can't separate those because at the end of the day, these issues aren't about the issues. Right? We've said this isn't about positions, it's not about politics, it's not about policies, it's not about platforms. We believe it's all about a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And he is both truth and love. So it can't be about him if we're unloving, and it can't be about him if we don't share our truth. And so we believe that truth and love, well, you can't have one without the other. Uh, a great quote from Chris Hodges, he said, Truth without love is mean, and love without truth is meaningless. Truth without love is mean, and love without truth is meaningless. Chris Hodges wrote a book called The Daniel Dilemma, uh, talking about how do you stand for truth in the middle of a culture that is opposed to your view of truth, uh, which is quite fitting, obviously, for our day and time today. Uh, I love that quote. 
Because here's the thing is the people of Jesus, we're not called to be mean or meaningless, right? And, and, and the way that we're neither mean nor meaningless is to be people of truth and love, which is why we approach our topics through the lenses of God's word, including this morning. So please grab your Bible if you would, please. Uh, if you don't have a Bible today, there's one underneath the seat in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, that is our gift to you today. We'd love for you just to keep that because we believe that this is a special book. We, matter of fact, we believe this book is so special, we hold it up and say a creed together each week before we jump in. And uh, we invite you to join in that tradition with us this morning as we hold up our Bibles and declare this together. The Bible is the Word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Thank you so much. Please turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, if you're using one of those Bibles from the seat in front of you, it's page 928. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to be dealing this morning uh, with the topic of sexuality through a biblical worldview. This sermon series hasn't been awkward or offensive enough, and so we've just decided let's talk about sex. Um, And of course, on the morning that I'm beginning to talk about sex, my mother-in-law is in town. So that's nice. We're going to discuss the topic of sex this morning. Because here's the thing. We believe that the creator of sex has something to say about sex. And so we want to listen to what he has to say about it this morning, uh, hopefully holding together intention, both truth and love. Verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you. So that, that's a, a lot of intensity there, right? We don't just ask you. We don't just urge you. We ask and urge in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. There's that idea from Ephesians 4 of growing up, right? That it's not just that you're walking right, it's that we're growing in that. More and more we're maturing in the life that God's called us to walk in. And of course that has to do, I believe, with our sexual purity, right? That God's calling us to move forward. Verse 2, you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus for this is the will of God. Awesome. People ask me all the time, what's God's will for my life? I can tell you that it's at least this, your sanctification. I can tell you for sure that God's will for your life is that we are different today than we were yesterday, to sanctify, to be being made holy, to be being conformed to the image of Jesus, this lifelong process that we don't believe will be fully done until this life is over and we lay off this vessel of clay when finally the incorruptible, uh, the, the corruptible takes on incorruptible and the perishable takes on imperishable. Until that day we're being sanctified, we're growing. This is the will of God that we move forward in that. And specifically that we would abstain from sexual immorality. Let's park there for a minute and discuss what does the Bible mean when it says sexual immorality? Does that mean adultery? Or does that mean premarital sex? Or does that mean living together? Or does that mean pornography? Or does that mean all of the above? The, the phrase here, sexual immorality, is, is the, if I can use this word respectfully, the generic word used in the scripture to deal with all sexual behavior outside of God's plan and order. We believe God's plan and order is clearly revealed in scripture. 
We believe that God's plan for sex is that all sexual activity is enjoyed between one man and one woman in a marriage covenant committed for one lifetime. That is out of date. That is out of fashion. And according to Senator Warren, I'm lucky if I even have a wife. Thank you, Senator Warren. I do have a wife. We're very happily married. She's beautiful. You should meet her. Thank you very much. Anyways, that's what we believe Anything outside of that is what's meant here by sexual immorality. That God's intention, His will, is that we would abstain from that. Verse 4, that each one of you know how to control his own body. Right? So this idea of sexual immorality actually isn't about our neighbor. It's about our own body. This topic of sex where we seem to talk about what the culture's doing or what anybody else has the freedom to do or not the freedom to do. Listen, no, this is about us. This is a conversation for us to have about our own behavior. Not what somebody else does. That's, by the way, the way we have this conversation and be unloving is when this is about what everybody else is doing instead of what we are doing, what we are called to. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. So at the end of the day, sexual immorality isn't just a sin against God. We're sinning against one another when we break God's uh, uh, boundaries on this because the Lord is an avenger in all these things because if we're sinning against one another, that means we're sinning against his image bearers as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his spirit to you. We're going to draw six observations out of this text this morning as we talk about biblical sexuality. And the first one is this, we exist to please God, not self. And that is completely upside down of the world's view of this topic. We were created, we exist, we have purpose that's not all about us. We exist for something beyond just ourselves. If we didn't, then surely, whatever feels good, do it. Unless we don't exist for our glory or ultimately for our pleasure, but rather for the pleasure of the heart of God. And everyone wants to have conversation about sexual pleasure when at the end of the day, the true pleasing is supposed to be the heart of a holy creator God. We don't exist for us. This isn't all about us. And here's the thing. Everything in us wants it to be about us. (laughs) So this doesn't just go against the culture. This goes against us. We want it to be our way and on our terms and to be about us. But we exist to please God more and more. To be constantly conformed to a life that more honors Him and is more pleasing to Him. Our goal isn't to find out What can I do and get away with it that pleases me? It's how can I live a life that's more and more pleasing and honoring to God? Second observation. Healthy sexuality is defined by the Creator. Or you could say it this way. Healthy uh, healthy sexuality is defined by the one who created sexuality. Right? If there is a Creator then there is a standard of authority. The reason this goes back to the authority issue is we don't want anybody to tell us what to do. If after we finish our service this morning, if you were to go to a restaurant 
And if you were to walk in and complete chaos has ensued, there's a food fight going on. There's people swinging from the ceiling fans, right? The hostess table people are like kicking back cold ones like, it's just complete nuts, right? At some point in time, you're going to go, hey, who's in charge around here, right? And what I believe the, the body of Christ needs to do is walk into the sexual chaos of our day and say, hey, we know who's in charge here. We actually know. We believe there's a creator. He's not just the manager on duty. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. He's the one who rules and, wells and, uh, rules and reigns and does all things well. He hasn't fallen asleep at the wheel. He is still the source of authority, which is why we continue to come back every week to the Genesis narrative. Genesis 127, then God said, let us make man in our image. So he created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. He created them. He created them. Which means he gets to set the tone. Which means he gets to set the standard. If there is a creator, then I'm accountable to somebody. If there is a creator, there's a standard of authority. One of the things I enjoy is listening from the other room when I tell one of my boys to go tell one of their brothers to do something. Go tell your brother it's time for bed. And I will hear, says who? Right? Because if they're going to go tell their little brother, hey, it's time for bed, and they say, says who? And they say, says me? Like, ding, 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 it's go time. Right? But if it says dad or says mom, they're not going to start swinging. Not if they're smart. Says who is an important question, right? We don't believe that the church is the voice of, of what proper and holy and healthy sexuality is. No, we believe God is. Now, we interpret what we believe he's revealed. But at the end of the day, this isn't about our views, and it sure ain't about your politics. I don't care what your party votes or thinks about sexuality. I care about what God says. What is his standard? What is his truth? And the heartbreaking reality is we as a culture, we as a society, have evolved to this grown-up dignified status where our motto is, you're not the boss of me. Right? Nobody tells me what to do. But here's the thing. We actually believe there's a throne that we will stand before one day. And we will give it an account for. Which is why... We teach ourselves what we believe God says, and we believe we have the constitutionally protected right to teach our children what God says. Now, we're not trying to force other people who don't believe what we believe to believe what we believe. The mission is not to legislate this. It's to believe it, practice it, grow in it, and train our children to do the same. If we believe God's word is true. Again, I mentioned Chris Hodges in his book, The Daniel Dilemma. In there, he mentions that only 35% of Americans believe in moral absolutes, according to research by the Barna Group. Just around a third of Americans say, I believe there's such a thing as absolute right and absolute wrong. Now, only a third of Americans say it exists. They didn't say what it was or where it came from or has it been revealed, right? But here's the thing. We believe that the Creator God has established right or wrong, including in the topic of sexuality. Only a third of Americans believe there's such a thing as right or wrong. It's all based on 
well, what do you think? It depends on the situation. That's up to you. Moral relativism is the religion of the day. Which is why we find even those who claim to be Christians saying, listen, it doesn't matter. God doesn't care about gay sex anymore. He doesn't care about sexual fantasies. He doesn't care about living together. He doesn't care about drunkenness. He doesn't care about pornography. God no longer has a standard on these things. But we just believe that as culture shifts, truth doesn't change with it. We believe there's a standard that isn't felt or sensed. It's rooted in timelessness. Young people are growing up in a culture with no foundation. And Chris Hodges says this. He says, The alarmingly fast decline of moral foundations among our young people has culminated in a one-word worldview. Whatever. Don't you hate when your kids say whatever? Whew. Yeah. The Spirit just moved on somebody right there. But that's not just become the response to mom and dad. That's become a, a fully packaged worldview in one word. Whatever. God doesn't care about anything anymore. Can't we all just get along? So more research by the Barner Group. I find this fascinating. 62% of Americans polled said they considered themselves deeply spiritual. So a majority of Americans, 62% of Americans, said they considered themselves deeply spiritual. But then the Barna Group began to study, well, how does that deep spirituality inform your view of right and wrong? Your view of morals. And here's what's interesting. Less than a third said, around a third, almost a third, said, I make my moral choices based on what feels right and comfortable. So of these who said they're deeply spiritual, the way they determine right and wrong is based on how they feel on any given day. Right? Another 18% of this group said, I make moral choices based on whatever's best for me. At least they're honest. <laughs> right? My deep spirituality influences my decisions not at all. I just want to know what's best for me. Which ultimately means I'm my own God. Right? If my definition of right and wrong is based on what serves me best, then I'm really in a religion unto myself. Another 14%, and this is kind of heartbreaking, another 14% said I make moral choices based on whatever causes the least conflict with others. And man, in 2019, that's a path to nowhere. Because everybody's offended by everything. Like even if you don't take an opinion, you get called out for not having an opinion about it. Or maybe not sharing your opinion on social media as though that's the way to engage in these conversations. Like th this is a path to nowhere. If, if, if I'm choosing what's right and what's wrong based on what doesn't offend people, I might as well stay home, lock the doors, and, and, and not pay my power bill. Like we're headed to Amish country, right? We're disconnecting from it all. But even then, like, you're going to want to keep your car, so you will offend the, the lovely Amish people. So only 16% of these deeply spiritual people said, I make my moral choices based on what the Bible says, on what God's Word says. Only 16% of the deeply spiritual people in the U.S. said, I have a biblical worldview. That's alarming to me. What that means is, even if we believe there's a standard of truth, we're not actually letting it dictate the way we view life. We're so afraid of offending, or we're so afraid of being out of touch, or we're so afraid of not being current, that we've allowed the noise of the culture to drown out our definition of truth. So the first observation from the text is, we don't exist for ourselves, we exist to please God. 
The second perspective is that healthy sexuality is defined by the Creator. Not popular opinion, not what makes people happy. The third thing we would say, according to this text, is sexual behavior is not my identity. It's not my identity. This is about what we do with our body. That's why this is about self-control. If it's about self-control, then it's about my actions, not my identity. But we're the first generation in history that says, no, what I do sexually totally defines me. It's who I am. It's not a choice I make. It's not an activity that I participate in. It's who I am. And what we have done is, as a culture, we don't even know who we are anymore. So I read this fascinating story of a group of tourists in Iceland uh, traveling around on a tour bus. And they went and visited this this park where there was a, a volcanic canyon. And they're touring with their tour guides, this volcanic canyon. And one lady in the group decides, man, I want to go change clothes. She goes back to the bus, gets her clothes. She changes clothes. She comes back to join up with the group. And she realizes when she rejoins the group that crisis has ensued here. And they've lost someone. And when they've called the authorities, they're freaking out. They're dividing up the tourists into search parties. And they send people out all over this canyon to search for this lost woman. And they search for hours and hours. And finally... At 3 a.m., the woman who had changed clothes realizes, I'm searching for myself. I'm the person they think was lost. Because I changed clothes, they think I'm missing. Literally, the mystery was solved. She found herself. Right? And what I believe is we have a whole culture coming up, especially the, the generation behind us, saying, listen, I don't even know who I am. I'm searching for my own identity. And it's because we're rooting our identity in behavior instead of being. We are not human doings. We are human beings. And if my sexual behavior isn't what I do, it's who I am, then that changes, reframes this whole conversation. If, if sexuality is natural identity then my faith demands tolerance. If what I do sexually is in my DNA and it's who I am, it's been marked on me that I will have many affairs and and sleep with every person that stands still for more than 30 seconds. That's who I am. If that's true, then our faith has to say, well, if that's who you are, We're supposed to love you, receive you, accept you, and affirm you. This goes back to the conversation we had last week about race. If truly what I want to do sexually is the same as the color of my skin, then the church has no choice but tolerance. But if sexuality is moral activity, then my faith gets a voice. If sexuality is a moral activity, meaning it's something that we do, not who we are, And it's moral. There's right and wrong attached to it. Then, of course, I'm allowed to talk about my religious views. If my religion doesn't define or engage in moral behavior, then what good is my religion? And as a culture, we believe that sexuality is moral. We as a culture have affirmed there are kinds of sex that are right and wrong. We as a culture have said that to force yourself upon someone who is not interested in having sex with you 
is immoral. It's called sexual assault. We've said that's immoral. We as a culture have said having sex with a minor is immoral. So as a culture, we've acknowledged that the topic of sex is a moral topic. Not an identity. Now, here's the problem. For those who are saying, nope, it's all about nature, there's a growing movement of people in the United States of America who are advocating for the legalization of pedophilia. There are a group of people who have said, no, who I am is a person who is naturally attracted to children, and you shouldn't take that right from me because that's who I am. You're discriminating. There are people who are turning pedophilia into a trying to turn pedophilia into a civil rights issue but here's the thing that's actually honest to the argument at large the argument at large is what i choose to do sexually isn't an activity it's an identity well then they're right we believe that confusing who i am with what i do is dangerous what i do there are moral choices and moral consequences and if my faith can't speak into moral activity, then what are we doing? We deserve a seat at the table in this conversation. One of the most articulate voices in evangelicalism about the topic of sexuality is Rosaria Butterfield. She says this, how do we make an identity out of temptation? By collapsing what you desire with who you are. By collapsing what tempts you or what trips you up with who you will become. And then she says this. God's revealed purpose for my identity always nails me to his cross. See, my identity, I believe, is informed in the Genesis narrative. My identity is I'm an image bearer. There is a creator. He created me. He didn't just create me and send me on my way. He created me and placed his image on me, which means we all carry inherent dignity, value, and worth, regardless of the choices that we make. That is my identity. And there's nowhere that that's proven more true than in the cross of Jesus Christ. That humankind is worthy of, of sacrifice, even of the life of the Son of God. That is the value of humankind that roots our identity in who we actually are. And when we remove who I am with what I do, all of a sudden the anger of the conversation begins to settle. Because if someone asks me what my view of sexuality is, and I'm not attacking their personhood, I'm answering what I believe my view is of an activity all of a sudden, it's far less offensive. Does that make sense? Do you see how that changes the whole conversation? I don't believe this is about who we are. This is about what we choose to do. And I believe that a person's faith has the right to decide that, has a right to inform that, even when that's really unpopular, which is the next observation. I believe that biblical sexuality is countercultural. And really, if I said this sentence the way I really wanted to say it, I would say biblical sexuality is always countercultural, always has been, always will be, 
we're not as special in 2019 as we think we are. As a matter of fact, our weird moment in the story is we actually belonged to a nation for a while where the majority of people actually had a cultural majority view of God's standard of sexuality. But in the human story, that's a blip on the radar. Like the American story was weird for a moment. We've just become normal where those who hold to a biblical worldview are in the minority. The Apostle Paul says, listen, this this fight against sexual immorality is not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. There's supposed to be a difference in the way we view sexuality and the way the culture at large views it. And somehow I hear Christians today literally offended that lost people don't share our views on sexuality. Like, what are we so insecure about? Of course they don't agree with us. That's fine. Leave them alone. That's not the point. Now, if they come into our churches, the culture at large, and say, you can't even teach what you believe in your religious building or in your household, I absolutely have a problem with that. Because that's un-American. That's unconstitutional. The reality is the, the, the majority view throughout history for followers of Jesus has been, we're in the minority. We have a different view of everyone else. I'm going to say something that might be unpopular as... I don't know, as if I haven't already, maybe. I actually don't think the worst thing that ever happened was that gay people were allowed to marry in America. I don't think that's the worst thing that's ever happened. You know why? Because we are a federal constitutional democratic republic, and the majority of Americans don't share our worldview. Do I think it's sad? Do I think it disagrees with my worldview? Yes. Do I think it's American? Yes. The reality is if we don't like the direction the culture is going, we're supposed to love people and point them to truth. Listen, we lost our credible ground in that debate when our divorce rate was the same as the culture at large. When, When inside the church we see the amount of adultery is the same as those outside the church. When within the church we see pornography usage is the same as those outside the church. Listen, we're not winning political battles here. Let's tend to our own house. This is about our heart before God. Which is why the Apostle Paul said to the church of Corinth, he said, man, flee from sexual immorality. Not tell everybody else what direction they should run. You flee. Which I believe flee means you and your household. We have the right to teach our children our worldview. Flee sexual immorality. Why would I run from it? What's the big deal? Because every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And that's supposed to matter to us if we have a biblical worldview. Don't you know? Your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You aren't your own. You were bought with a price. And what a price that was. So glorify God in your body. If we understand the ramifications of this, we understand this is all about honoring God. This is all about standing before God, verse 20, glorifying Him before His throne. And I feel like, for many people in the church, we are more concerned about lost people's morality than the church's immorality. 
Listen, we, we look in the mirror and say, am I more and more pleasing God? Am I more and more being set free from sin? Am I more and more being sanctified? That's the million dollar question. Because if God is sanctifying his bride, she will have ground to stand on when the culture at large asks, why are you all so different? Why are your marriages so strong? Why are you so free from sexual sin? Why are you all getting it right when we keep struggling? Why do you have less STDs than the world at large? Listen, because we're following the Creator's principles. The reason the culture thinks we're judging them is because many in the church are judging the culture instead of looking in the mirror. Biblical sexuality is countercultural, and it always will be. And let me say this. I... I've said this for years, and I don't think it's less true today. I think it's more true today. I believe there will come a day where I can't preach publicly what I view about sexuality without some kind of consequences. And I just got to tell you, I just don't think God's truth changes based on what's accepted by the culture. I I, I truly think that, and here's the thing, I, I will say this. I'm not a guy who's out there screaming at people with signs and and telling people I've never met before that they're going to burn in hell or whatever. Listen, I'm gathering together with people who say they want to know what I think the Bible says. I'm going to keep answering that question. If all y'all quit coming and I'm preaching to just my family, they have to come. Then we'll figure it out. In the meantime, I don't intend to change my view because it's unpopular. This isn't middle school. Like My goal in life is not to be liked. It's it's to follow what's the heart of God and then share that in the most loving, unoffensive way possible when given the opportunity to do so. Now, I'm going to teach my children without hesitation what I what I believe about this. And I'm going to teach the next generation whose parents let me teach them what I think God says about this. I'm not doing that to bash people who don't believe what we believe. They don't believe what we believe. Does that make sense? Man, we're, we're not out to attack We're out to just swim against the culture and teach what we believe to be true. Here's the next principle from the text. I believe that biblical sexuality is a heart issue. It's not actually about our bodies. It's about our heart. When we disregard God's view of sexual morality, we're not disregarding man, but God. This isn't about what this church believes or what some denomination believes or what some politician believes. We believe this is about God's view. This is about Him. And our heart before God has always been more important to Him than what we do. We serve a God who's more concerned with the human heart than just our activity. That's why we believe this is an important issue to God, even though most of this issue happens in secret. Right? There's a view of of sexuality, of why are we talking about this? It's nobody's business because it's happening behind closed doors, right? And the reason it matters is because what happens behind closed doors isn't what moves the heart of God. It's the heart of humankind, whether that's open door, closed door, or no door. He's concerned about your heart. He loves you. And, And there's no area in this that I think we see this clearer than in the issue of pornography. Specifically, as we approach the issue of pornography, we see there is a battle against human dignity. Got a great quote here from Pope John Paul II, and maybe you never thought you'd hear a pope quoted in a Baptist church before. 
He said this, there's no dignity when the human dimension is eliminated from the person. In short, the problem with pornography is not that it shows too much of the person, but it shows far too little. It's profound. Listen, the, the dehumanizing, the de-dignifying of a human body when it when that body becomes just an object, a nameless object of unrestrained lust, is not showing too much of a person, it's showing too little. The heart that's reflected in there is a heart that doesn't understand the value of the image of God placed on humankind. Which is why Jesus said famously in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, you've heard that it was said you should not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery where it matters most, in his heart. This is a heart issue. And overwhelmingly, with the topic of pornography specifically, our culture's view has shifted profoundly. And we are, we're like alone voices here saying, this is not good for us as a culture. Not only is this not good morally before God, this isn't good for our marriages, for our brains, for our emotional, for our mental health. But what's interesting is we look at the generations behind us, only one in 20 of young adults and only one in 10 teenagers report that their friends think watching porn is bad. In other words, only 5% of millennials and only 10% of Gen Z say, my friends think porn is bad. Which means the majority of their peer influences, as in 95% and 90% of their peer influences are like, what's the big deal? I mean, it's just between you and your device. I mean, nobody's hurt. It's a big deal. The question is not, Josh McDowell said, will my kids see porn? But when will my kids see porn? And how will they handle it when they do? Currently, the average age of exposure to pornography in the United States is eight years old. Eight years old. And so by the time our eight-year-olds become teenagers and all their friends think it's fine, we have full-blown addictive behaviors. As a matter of fact, millennials and Gen Z think that it's more immoral to not recycle than to view porn. Millennials and Gen Z think it's more immoral to not recycle than to view porn. Even though research, secular research, clearly shows that viewing porn rewires our brains and creates addiction. There's significant data that, that connects porn with anxiety and depression and lack of productivity and motivation and guilt and shame. It's bad for us. It's not good for our brains. It's not good for our souls. And it's not good for our marriages. The divorce rate among porn addicts is profoundly worse than the already alarming divorce rates in our country. We contend for purity not to be buzz kills or joy kills. We literally think it's loving and the best thing we can do to say, hey, this isn't good for you. This isn't good for us. But it's a battle. That's why Job said in Job 31, I've made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? Job said this long before the internet long before internet porn, long before even the printing press, before printed porn, 
Job said this. As a matter of fact, Job, if you don't know, is the oldest book of the Bible. It was written before the book of Genesis. This battle for the eyes is not a new thing. There are new ways that we're having to fight it because of technology. But lust is not new. Its effects are still just as harmful. Which is why we encourage every family to put guardrails in place. We encourage every family to have uh, accountability and monitoring software on every electronic device in your home. Matter of fact, if you look on the church app or if you go online to our, our website, you find a link to download Covenant Eyes. Uh, that, that's the accountability software that we highest recommend. There's several out there, whatever. But we recommend this because we believe this is a dangerous pathway. And I love what Josh McDowell said. He said, I'd rather put a fence at the top of the cliff than an ambulance at the bottom. Over and over again, we find people at the bottom of the cliff in need of an ambulance. We think, oh, we begged you to get a fence. (laughs) We begged you to get a guardrail. Listen, we're not saying this for our benefit. We're saying this for you. And if you need help with this, if this is something you've already failed in or or see that you're on a a difficult road, man, we are for you. We're not going to beat you up. We're not going to shame you. We're not going to look down on you. We're going to fight with you alongside you because we believe God's way is best, which is our last observation. We believe that biblical sexuality is for our good. God is not the mean, grumpy monster going, I want this to be as miserable as possible. This God that that we're being encouraged not to disregard is the God who does all things well, who works all things for good. His throne that we will stand before one day is a throne of mercy and a throne of grace and a throne of acceptance and a, a throne of kindness. That same loving God is saying, just trust me, I made this. I know how it works best. This is for our good. We know the heartache of not following God's plan. And we want to walk alongside one another to guard one another from that pain. And all I believe the enemy wants to do is shut us up. Because maybe something that we say to one another will be overheard and sound judgmental or condemning. Listen, we're not here to condemn anybody. We're here to fight for joy. We're here to fight for vitality. We're here to fight for wholeness. We believe that's found in obeying and following the Creator. Not a low view of sexuality, but a high view of sexuality. Matter of fact, Romans chapter 13 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. Listen, God's calling us to honor. To holiness, to wellness. And listen, God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And anybody else who doesn't fall in line with Him and obey Him and place their faith in Him and find forgiveness of sins in Him. But God's way is better. Holding marriage and honor in the marriage bed as holy and as sacred. This loving God is calling us just to trust and so this, this idea of, man, do you, are you so out of touch that you believe no sexual activity outside of marriage between one man and one woman? You really believe that that's what's best? I do, because I believe that's what God has revealed. And He's good. I don't believe that because that's what some theologian told me. I don't believe that because that's what some denomination or religion told me. I sure don't believe that because some politician told me that. I believe that because a loving, faithful, holy God has revealed that. 
And we're challenging you, trust his heart. Because he's the God who makes all things new. At the end of the day, though, we believe God's far more concerned about who we are and about the condition of our heart than what we do sexually. And so what matters more than any of that is, do you know for sure, for sure, that you have a personal relationship with God? Because by a million miles, that's what's most important this morning. Do you know for sure that you've experienced the forgiveness of sin? Listen, some people carry a ton of guilt and shame over sexual things they've done in their past. Listen, there's freedom from that shame. There's healing for that guilt. It's called the love of God. And it's available for you in this place today. We want you to know that. We want you to experience it.